from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast, and this is Barry. He forgot his name. I did. This is MJ. MJ. Oh, doing that now. This is Mark. This is Mark. Every week it's something different. Every week it's something different. So, um, wow, it's another day on the Tiny House Podcast, and spring has sprung. Um, For those of you who are listening to this in a timely manner, (laughs) for those of you who are listening to it in December. Yeah, I think this is going to air in December, so. Exactly. (laughs) Happy spring, everybody. Merry Christmas. The Starbucks cups have changed their color. Did you know that the first. That's so stupid. (laughs) Sorry, Howard. (laughs) He listens to the show, listeners. Howard Schultz, big shout out. So does Steve Case, by the way. The first (laughs) spring uh, cup I got of the new spring collection from Starbucks Mm -hmm. matched my tiny house. Oh, my goodness. Which one? The yellow. Well, you have two now. Oh, yeah. That's a legitimate question. That is a legitimate question. (laughs) No, the. The bright yellow coffee cup I got a couple of days ago matched perfectly the bright yellow paint on my second tiny house, aka my tiny perch. I was it, it <clears throat> felt serendipitous. That's a that was an Instagram moment. Did you Instagram it? Of course, of course. An inch. I <laughs> and and we ha- actually I went on uh, Tiny House People and I said, "What does it mean when your coffee cup matches your <laughs> your the paint color all over your fingernails?" Uh, we actually, it was a really fun moment nice. this, this past week. So Nice. So it looked like Mark was going to say something. No, I was just, just going to say they're very Easter eggy colors. Yeah, it's pastel yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Easter because our guest today is, um, uh, never mind. <laughs> that was, <laughs> I was, a, good, that was a baton God. handoff. Is God, right yeah. Was it really? It was. was it intended? Oh, that's it a was. great segue, Mark. Thank Damn. you. So Even let's go with it then. Coming. Okay, I did not get that. So yeah. Who's in the house? Our, our God is in the house today. God is with us following the tiny house movement. And he has brought his emissary, Mark Frederick, who once lived in a renovated bus and did homeless missionary with his family. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great to have you. So um, how on earth did you end up in a school bus doing missionary work with the homeless? <clears throat> well, it's it's kind of uh, interesting. Um, what happened was uh, we, my wife and I, we have seven kids. So there were nine of us that traveled on the bus, which is, uh, if you break that down, is very low amount of square footage per person. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we had this vision and dream to, to travel. My wife and I have always loved to do that. So, uh, we had this, uh, essentially we were leading a prayer ministry at our church and through a fast, it was just revealed this whole concept of traveling and we had no idea what it meant, but, um, we thought an RV was going to be the way to go. And so I was telling my, my dad about it and he said, you need to do a school bus conversion. And I said, a what? And at that point, I had no idea what a schoolie was, and uh, so I sort of dismissed it. But then an, another friend of mine, um, who's a master tech, uh, BMW mechanic, he said I was telling him about it, about this, you know, what our hope and dream was, and he said, "Well, you need to do a school bus conversion." And <laughs> so at that point, I thought 
Hmm, I should look into this. So I, I got onto the internet and found schoolie.net and probably within a few days had some uh, you know preliminary sketches of my first design. Wow. So Mark, um, I'm going to take a, a detour here because- I thought I, you were going to take a wild stab and ask if his dad was binge watching the Partridge family. No, I was going to, well, we're going in that direction because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so freaking curious. Yeah. How on earth did you end up with nine kids? <clears throat> well, I actually have seven kids, um, unless you count me. I thought he said nine. He did. Nine okay. in the family, he's, he's, seven oh, children, two adults. Okay. Oh, I yeah. see. Okay, got it. Yep. Seven kids, two adults. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although my wife might say, you know, eight, <laughs> eight, she has eight, eight children, children yeah. and one adult. <laughs> <laughs> my wife says that all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, young at heart, I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, you know, I've always uh, built and constructed and done automotive things, you know, worked with my hands. I'm a tech guy. I've done IT um, you know, application development for, you know, 25 years. Actually, I've been coding since I was 12, um, you know, and I was, I was uh, born in the early 70s, so you can do the math. Um, but I uh, always loved to work with my hands, and so it seemed like a natural challenge uh, to, to, in, to undertake uh, the schooling. And this was in 2009, so it was pretty early in terms of, you know, tiny house movement stuff in the U.S. And in addition to the bus, we actually – created a um a 20 foot i uh, built on a flatbed trailer which sounds a lot like a tiny house it was an eight by eight kitchen with an eight by eight garage w- that i could pull my you know harley and all my tools and it had a three foot loft uh, across the entire top so it was you know, all you know stick build this was a early day tiny house but it, it didn't have a bathroom we pulled it with our our caterpillar which is 40 feet um, our Thomas was 40 feet with a Caterpillar 3208 engine, and it would—it was a 65-foot beast. Wait a second. What is what is? So when you say Caterpillar, I think tractor, uh, big tr- big dirt hauler. What I are you talking about? I think nickname for a big long-ass yellow bus. Oh, is that well, it's it's a cat. You know, cat makes engines, and if you oh, neither you see you know <laughs> semi trucks on the highway that uh, you know most of them have Caterpillar diesels or Detroit's or whatever. Um, Caterpillar is a you know industrial you know heavy duty, and the thirty two eight they used it for probably twenty years. It's a beast of a motor, hmm. and uh, can pull just about anything. Huh? Wow. And is that what was in the bus? That's right. It, did it come with that in there? It did. It, it's a diesel pusher. So, you know, when you start talking schoolies, and this is a little bit outside the tiny house, but um, when you start, start talking schoolies, there's a lot of different options. They have the dog nose, which you see, obviously, it's got that front engine, and then they have a diesel pusher. And there is actually diesel uh, uh-huh. flat nose with the diesel engine in the front, but what we wanted was a pusher, which okay. means the engine's in the back, and all the transaxles in the back, so the entire underbelly of the bus is completely empty, which is beautiful for adding your holding tanks and storage and being able to get under there to work and do interesting things. How much did that bus cost? Um, we, we paid uh, $3,500 for it, and it had basically 200,000 miles, which is you know, probably a quarter of the life of the motor. Wow. Uh, you know, those things will do a million miles. Wow. Um, pretty common, 750, 800,000 miles. Um, diesel motors just go forever um, unless they overheat and then they're done. Huh, interesting. 
We interviewed a schoolie a couple of weeks ago. So just we so did you know, actually. We are, we are venturing outside the tiny house well, box. Well, actually, a the, bit. yeah, the tiny house podcast is all over the place. We're not just tiny houses, but it's it's interesting that the guy that we interviewed last week, I think, or the week before, had a short bus. I'm hesitating because it wasn't really like a well, official it, short bus. Yeah. It was like a cut short bus. Yeah. yeah. So why? So I presume you chose. I understand you wanted a pusher, which makes total sense because of the spacing, the space availability on under the floor. Uh, is this a standard size bus like you see driving kids around with the flat nose? No, th- yeah, no. This this bus is, was pretty rare, um, and I, you know, had been looking around to travel to either Ohio or San Diego because there was a large concentration of buses there that they were auctioning. And that seemed to be like the only sources that I could really find. And uh, I just happened to look on Craigslist, and there was a and there was a guy who had one listed, <clears throat> and it was actually interestingly enough, back in the where uh, in the same uh, backyard stomping grounds, I guess that my wife and I went to to high school. So it actually turned out that this 1988 Thomas school bus was a Cobb County school bus that was a coral bus meaning that it had tinted windows, which was pretty rare also. Um, and, you know, a coral bus, meaning that they probably used it for traveling on Friday nights to football games and oh. things of that nature. My wife and I graduated around, you know, the late um, 90, uh, 80s, uh, 89 to be exact. And we probably rode that school bus since we were both <laughs> in the marching band. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I love the coral bus. Did you I find re- your initials carved in it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was always arguments about who got to sit at the back of the coral bus because all the teachers were in the front of the oh, coral right. bus. And it was long, so you could get away with stuff back there. No. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they and they are they were much longer back then. I mean, this bus actually would hold, <clears throat> I think, forty kids. Is that, is that a lot for a bus? Which which is a lot. Um, you know, in terms of the seating, I think they've re- reduced them about three or four feet now. Mm-hmm. You don't see them this long much because they just the number of students on the bus. They tried to, you know, reduce that, I guess. Yeah, because there's power in numbers and you only got one adult in there driving that thing. That's right. So we bought a bus. We built a kitchen to uh, tow behind the bus and we loaded up our seven children and drove where? Well, we started off, um, we took a, <clears throat> a short trip, to t- a couple short trips to test the bus out because, you know, we had loaded it up and, you know, hey, we had weighted it. It's probably, you know, I think the, uh, the combined weight <clears throat> on the CAT scale uh, at the pilot put us around the equivalent weight of a Black Hawk helicopter. So <laughs> we wanted to make wow. sure that everything was operating properly um and on our first journey to augusta which was only about 100 miles we lost a wheel Ooh. on the trailer oh no oh my gosh so it wasn't the bus's yeah. problem at all it was a trailer and well the bus i <clears throat> i probably was dragging that thing a couple miles i did not even know it because oh. the don't even mm. feel anything back there it's such a big yeah. beast of a of a you know bus and that motor um, it was dark and it was night, and I looked back and I saw rooster tail sparks. So that's oh, the only way I knew wow. that uh, I had lost a wheel. But the reason I had lost the wheel was because, you know, they have these donut uh, mobile home axles. 
And a friend of mine said, you need to take that off because those wheels come off. And I said, ah, we'll be okay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> no, so I, I, I stay as far away from those things as possible. Um, they just, they're just not designed for uh, long travel. So, How bad was the damage? Um, it completely uh, destroyed the rotor. I had to do I, – I basically called a, a, a trailer shop local and did a complete roadside conversion. Um, wow. uh, basically, it was fortunately um, – this is a God thing, I guess, because we were able to just take one right turn, another right turn off the highway. Literally, I was a half a mile from the exit, and I was in a gravel lot. And so in that gravel lot – I took, I pulled off all the uh, drums, replaced them with the standard, um, you know, lug axles, and did a complete conversion on the roadside with new wheels and tires and hubs and everything. Wow! Do you need a Do you need a um, a special permit to drive something like that? It's interesting um, question because I didn't know um, when I first <laughs> bought the bus. It had, you know, it was an untouched school bus and so i assumed which is true uh it was a good assumption that anything that has that many seats you need a cdl yeah um, so what we had to do was i in my research there was a couple different things in georgia and a cut you know na- nationally that puts you in a cdl category one of them is air brakes oh which yeah we, which we have which we have air brakes and the other one is over twenty five thousand gross vehicle weight which we're in the thirty thousand category thirty six thousand um, pounds but um, all of those things, so, so if you look at the, you know, the state information about it, it's very confusing. And everybody you ask says, you know, their default answer is yes, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, because obviously it generates revenue and yeah. all that. So, um, but the reality is if you go up to an RV um, dealership, they have RV coaches that are well over 25,000 and they have air brakes and you don't need a CDL. So it's, it's, it's not required on a non-commercial vehicle, Uh, but what we had to do is we had to take our bus and reclassify it, which you take your title, which it says school bus, take it up to the state um, DOT uh, or DMV rather, um, the motor vehicle, and they reclassify it as a motor home. hmm. 10 days later, you get a new title. It says motor home. So I have a Thomas motor home. Oh, interesting. Wow. And then you're good to go with your normal license. I have a tiny house motorhome. Oh, because of the thing you're building on? The, yeah. the trailer you're building on? Yeah, they titled yeah, it as gotta, an RV. That's How right. hard is that? Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So so are you, you, are you still in the bus? We are. We uh, Okay, so the, the question that MJ asked, and I sort of diverted slightly yeah. um, because I thought that was an interesting story. You're really um, good at that. We, we <laughs> left... Uh, Atlanta and went down to Jacksonville, which which we were there for a few weeks. Then we took it up to all the way up to New Jersey and then Boston. And then we came across to uh, Niagara Falls, across Canada to Detroit, Chicago, Tennessee and back home. That was about a six month journey. That was our first journey. And uh, it was, you know, learning how to live on the road. you know, with nine people and constrained spaces and oftentimes, sometimes no place to park and you've got holding tanks and you've got limited water and limited power. And I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things you learn when you're trying to live tiny, especially in that model. Um, 
but it was it was it was amazing and uh so that was our first journey and then our second journey took us from um atlanta all the way across the midwest up you know through louisiana ten, uh, texas arizona up to california and we were we, we actually parked for a, a couple of weeks at the uh giant stadium in san francisco mm-hmm. And then we came back across the Grand Canyon to uh, Albuquerque, back to Atlanta. Um, and that was about a three-month journey. When you go to these places, do you w- – w- what? I have so many questions. So <laughs> when, you, when you park, like when you parked at Giant Stadium, do you have another car that you use to get around, or, or what did you do? We do. We had a 1999 Dodge Caravan, which we called a shuttlecraft. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, it looks like uh, a shuttlecraft. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, Mission Bus was the command center, and shuttlecraft would allow us to get out and about. You know, we had um, a cargo carrier on top of it and a cargo rack on the back. So, and then we put a jump seat in the very back, so all nine of us could. I I converted it to a two two seats in the middle to three seats, so we could put. All kids and adults and our stuff in that little. It was the small. It wasn't even the sport caravan. It was like the bare bones, no power accessories. Crank went. I mean, it was the bare bones. Only had one sliding door. Oh my wow. word! Wow. So you know, it was uh, it, it was it was a great vehicle. I mean, we probably put it at four cylinder. Wow. We probably put, we probably, I think we put a quarter of a million miles on that thing. So go America. What was wow. what was the carrying capacity of the of that vehicle? Do you know? Originally, oh, you mean the weight? Yeah. Seven. Oh, I have capacity. no idea. People. But, oh, not, you not know, people, we, but weight. Actually, yeah. Uh, passengers? No weight. Original weight. Wait. Oh, weight. I I have no idea. Okay. But I'll tell you this: a couple times when we got stuck. Um, with, you know, 65 feet um, is tight sometimes, I had to take the trailer off. And our trailer was about 8,000, uh, 8,500 pounds, uh-huh. which is pretty which is pretty beefy. Yeah. Uh, I used the minivan as a dolly to move that trailer around. Oh <laughs> so it was powerful for a four-banger. Right. <laughs> well, uh, the wheels were barely touching the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so how in this bus... How many beds do you have? We have sleeping for nine. Each person has their own berth? They have only sleeping for nine in that bus. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, well, we, we built, uh, there's pictures of it on our website, which is missionbus.com. And um, you can see it has slides. I built slides. Um, you know, st- I fabricated steel. Um, basically, they're like giant drawers and they pull out both sides. So it's like having, you know, a 14 feet interior. Um, in the main living space. So that helped a lot. And so there's two dinettes in that space where my two sons sleep. Um, they have one on each side. And then in the in the the next area of the bus is uh, the bathroom and the um, refrigerator. And then beyond that is the bunkhouse, which my five girls sleep. There's two bunks on each side and a trundle that pulls out in the middle. So on the bottom, three girls would sleep across there and two girls would sleep up on the upper on the top bunk. And then beyond that, there was a second bathroom. We had a, you know, composting because, you know, nine people, one bathroom. <laughs> oh, not my gonna cut. Oh, oh, my God. Wow. And uh, beyond that was there was the master. You know, we had a queen size bed um, and then 
you know, we utilized every square inch of that space. Wow. I love how Perry thinks there wasn't sleeping for nine as if somebody's up on a watch all night, like it's mm. some kind of zombie <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> like, okay, who is on the, who's, who's on watch? watch? Who's on watch? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously they're going to, I didn't think of that, about that, that obviously they'd be sleeping for nine, but it's like, how in a bus? Yeah, yeah. How? Like the, I guess the beds are all, well, you said there was a, at least one queen size. And trundles. And trundle, so, trundles. Yeah. And so it's very, very. Interesting. And so the children were old enough, obviously, they were being homeschool bust? <laughs> yes, I, it's, it's funny to, uh, that's, we often refer to that we homeschool our kids on a school bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, we, when we left on our first journey, our youngest was about five. And, and our oldest, uh, you know, so the age range is about seven years and a couple days. So um, when our when our eighth, uh, I'm sorry, when our seventh child was born, we had seven kids that were seven years old and younger wow. for a couple of days. And Whoa. then my oldest turned eight. <laughs> wow. Whoa. What is what is um, now he's got a whole build crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is your uh, what does your wife do? I, I guess I, I besides have babies, yeah, everything well, recovers. <laughs> I, it seems like it. It's like a stupid question, but I'm really curious. Yeah, what is she? She's like your right hand person. I want to say right hand man, but she, you know. she's she um, is a, an amazing um, supporter mm-hmm. and follower, and you know she is an encourager. She she does. You know, basically, she's the compassion of the group. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm the uh, task-oriented steamroller sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, but she brings the compassion, and um, I've learned to be more compassionate. But you know, task-oriented people oftentimes don't worry about relationships; they worry about the task. Mm-hmm. So. That's one area that she really grounds me, I guess, in, um, or trying to, anyways. Well, you guys are a good combination. So when you stop at these locations, how do you do the missionary work? Do you have, what's that called when you have the big tent outdoors? What do you call that? Um, yeah, we don't we do not do uh, revival, revival tent yeah. type stuff. Um, really, our mission and goal is simple. Um, you know, Jesus said that the the poor will always be with you. And so we're not trying to solve homeless problem. What we're trying to do is to bring dignity back to people. Um, you know, the biggest poverty that homeless have is loneliness. And so, you know, my kids, they, and they don't often get to see young people because they're sort of often hidden under the bridges and in the woods and under overpasses and things like that. So we would often time travel down into those places and we would take sometimes we would take food sometimes we would take our instruments and we would play music we would sing we would just have conversation we would look them in their eyes and we would call them by their name and listen to their story and you know we would pray with them and just encourage them that you know god has not forgotten you even though you may have lost hope in man and humanity um he's not forgotten you and that's a simple message mm-hmm. um but um you know, if, if somebody needed a shirt and we could give it to them or, or they needed a meal. I mean, America is really blessed when you think about it. You can't go to many cities where there's not shelter, there's not food, there's not clothes. There's so much resource available. So the, the biggest poverty, like I said, is loneliness. So, okay, so let's take a, um, a shift of gears here and talk about the Big Heart Tiny House Company. Um, Michelle described the type of houses that, that you, you – well, let me let me back up. 
this this company still exists? Yes, you're building tiny houses. That's right. Okay. Yes, we we've shifted. Yep, that's right. Okay, um, and and as Michelle describes it, the houses you build are good quality, but they're not expensive to buy. Right. Yes. Uh, when when I uh, my attraction to to his houses specifically was um, there's the tiny house movement has kind of taken a direction where they're bigger and you know they're 30 35 feet long and they have air conditioning and they're very very heavy and very very expensive and they have you know concrete countertops and and this whole thing and so i appreciate the notion of tiny house design and sort of keeping it simple and keeping the tiny house movement approachable for a broader range of people, I, there's no way I would pay $85,000 for a 24-foot long house. I mean, um, some people do. That's great. That's where they are. But I think there's a, a huge number of people that would love a tiny house that's in a more approachable, um, either not just price range, but also design, you know, something just a little bit more simple and, and functional. And so that's what really attracted me um, originally to his houses. And then, of course, the more I talked to him, the more I learned about his his sort of life mantra and his design mantra. And so um, I definitely appreciate him and his designs for that, from that perspective. So Mark, why don't you describe to us your, your mantras? Yes. The, you know, there's a, as we sort of shifted away from, and we, you know, we, we traveled to all the major cities in the, in the country, um, North, South, East and West. And, and we, really uh, as we sort of shifted away from doing street ministry um there's really this near homelessness there's a, so many people in america that are they're not homeless but they're not far i mean they're on the the hairy edge of it and so creating you know a, a sustainable affordable housing is a challenge that you know most countries have and America's not exempt from that. So under twenty five thousand is our goal. Um, you know we can we can even do shells for as low as twelve thousand. The people that want to get involved and do it themselves and uh, you know so build, design, build, and educate. We want to help people to to be able to do things on their own. I think our our society and our culture's got away from doing stuff for yourself and paying somebody to do it. Uh, you know just because they just Either uh, maybe they don't have the time, but it probably more likely they just don't know how yeah. or they're afraid. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I was fortunate enough to live, you know, in a home where my parents, you know, had, you know, I, I've been using a hammer since I could pick one up and, you know, learned how to, you know, frame squares and how to do electrical and plumbing and all that stuff since, you know, always done it. Just, you know, just known how to. So helping other people learn how to do these things and be able to be self-sustaining is, is pretty important to us Then you know, creating a, a, a sustainable living model where you can actually live and give back to others as opposed to pouring all your money into yourself, which, you know, I, I'm not against or down on people to do that. That's fine. But I think that there's a, a, a kind of joy and happiness that comes from helping others that you can't get from just helping yourself. Yeah, and, and it's funny because the last guy that we were talking to on the show um, was talking about the same thing from the code standpoint in regards to making ensuring that the tiny house movement remains a space where people can be empowered to build their own dwellings and live in them um, without the force of law making that impossible. 
So good for mm-hmm. you for, for doing that work. And you're doing it more from the from the heart, which is why your house, your company is called Big Heart, I presume, which is kind of cool. So um, the so, wow, you build these things. I mean, the phrase that comes to mind is on the cheap, but they're not cheap at all. They're they're just affordable. They're affordable. Mm-hmm. They're inexpensive to buy. But they're obviously what what do you build to a particular standard? Well, you know, when you start looking, you know, we, we have experience of pulling across the country. So a, a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. technology that we use for building structures that are secured to a platform that are solid for high wind type of environments are, you know, basic te- basic building codes that, that every house uses if you're building a, a stick built house on the ground. And we're, get, we're doing some advocacy also for um, tiny houses on dirt. So um, in our community, you know, 800 square feet is the minimum. Well, we're going through the process to put on the dirt a, you know, probably 300 square feet. So we're trying to break that mold here locally, kind of like what this guy sounds like maybe what he's doing, something along those same lines to help get, you know, awareness that, you know, not everybody needs 800 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, standard and I over engineer things. Um, you know, when, when you start talking about hanging a water tank underneath your bus that, you know, <laughs> is 110 gallons wow. and you've got to got to stay on there <laughs> when it's full yeah. uh, you, you, you get the rigging yeah the, the rigging and the technology and the you know I, I'm, I'm an engineer so um always just enjoyed building and dreaming things up um and i love i love using wood i love using metal um f- fusing all the different types of raw materials to build things i think is is just a, a passion very interesting how many how long has your company been around? Well, we we you know we we start we we built our our school in in twenty it was ready on the road and roadworthy in twenty ten. Um, we started in September of last year. Um, what happened was we our 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 trailer was just sitting that we had built, and so I listed it on Craigslist. This is how Big Heart really kind of the nucleus of it occurred. Um, I listed it on Craigslist as a tiny house project. Well, the response was overwhelming. Uh, more than a dozen people immediately wanted to come see it. And so it needed, you know, it was a kitchen and a garage, rough garage, not finished with a loft. So, you know, you'd need to add a bathroom and probably open up the loft. And, you know, these were how I was presenting it. Mm-hmm. Well, a college student called me and she came out and she bought it. And her and her boyfriend came, and they camped out on our property. We got, you know, two and a quarter acres, so they camped out, and I helped them learn how to use the tools to make some of the modifications. We helped do some of the modifications just for fun. Um, at this point, I was still working. My, uh, I was a, the CIO for a tech company in Austin, and uh, at that point, was just having fun. But I started, and then one of her friends, after we delivered that, um, you know, so we added a bathroom, opened the loft up, finished the inside, did some other you know, electrical changes and things and such. One of her friends called and said, you have to build me one. <laughs> so, but I don't have a lot of money. I'm a college student. I've got big college you know, debt and all this stuff. Um, but this is what I can swing. And so we basically designed and built um, the Gilbert, which is the first model um, that we built and sold to a customer 
And our platform is, is based on that design, which is a 20 foot, um, you know, it's 13 and a half feet tall. It's got a, a loft. So it's a very large open space. And, uh, you know, the, the cost savings that you get a lot of times is on the inside. You know, the structure and the outside, all that's pretty much the same on a lot of different. I mean, what you cover it with obviously can afford, afford the, the cost higher. But any house that you buy anywhere, no matter what size it is, the, the price really starts to jump when you start finishing the inside fancy. Mm. And so we try to keep a bare bones, basic finish that's the, the lowest cost possible. Um, that's durable, that is going to afford somebody the ability to, if they want to upgrade later and do more things later, they can, but to get into it, it's going to be very, you know, small window for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think another thing that your, um, your builds and mine have in common and that I appreciated, and that is the notion of using, uh, <clears throat> reusing RV chassis as well, um, I, a word of caution: um, It does take a, it still takes a tremendous amount of work to to use a, a an RV chassis. You need to make sure that it, it's inspected and there's no damage, and so it's an entirely different process. But it definitely gives you an opportunity to save a lot of money uh, building a tiny house on an RV chassis as opposed to you know paying three or four or five thousand dollars or more. Um, for a tiny house trailer, it's 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 a trade off for sure because you got to spend a lot more time in prep work and subfloor design and so forth. So, um, do you use, as I understand it, you used um, a, a used RV chassis on the Gilbert on the original model. Do you still use them as a matter of practice, or is that a budgetary constraint? Um, I ch to to keep our under twenty five k number, we we do use recycled trailers, and there's great trailers out there. And we typically rehab them by giving them new uh, bearings and uh, brake assemblies, and doing any kind of additional restructuring that we need to do to help reinforce the trailer. Um, the, the interesting on the Gilbert, the first that twenty four foot trailer was a originally started off as a travel trailer. It lived its useful life, and then a pastor took it and converted it into a revival trailer. He put a platform wow. on it with, with with a rail and built in some outlets, and he would throw his tent, his chairs, his AV on that trailer, drive it out, set up his big tent, and have a big church thing. So this guy now, so he, I think he had some health issues. We found this trailer and we bought it and you can save a significant amount of money. Even with all of the additional rehabs that you may do to the trailer, it's half the cost typically of what you would buy a trailer for, you know, designed for tiny house. Um, and there are some constraints. Weight is a constraint, you know, our cat scale, 6,700 pound, um, you know, weight is what we, the Gilbert uh, weighed in at 6,700 pounds. So you, you have some more constraints. Um, typically those trailers are not going to have 5,000 K axles. So you, you do have some more limitations, but because of the type of our design, we use lightweight materials, we use less materials. So that's typically not an issue. The other thing is um, if you're planning to actually travel with these, the only tra the only trailer I would that I will build that I know somebody's going to travel with it is a gooseneck. Only because you know, anytime you're you know, a novice pulling these things, I just bumper pulls are just you know you've got weight behind the pulling axle. 
It's just, you know, there's so many. I've seen too many. Go watch YouTube videos. That's all I have to Mm-mm. say about it. No what, way. what have you seen? What have you no seen? No way. Well, once they start to sway, if, if the weight is not distributed correctly, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, and it's it's a pretty, it's a mathematical formula, you know, between 10 to 15% of your total weight of your trailer needs to be between the front axle and the tongue. And uh-huh. so he talks about novices doing pull behinds. If you're not at all aware, number one, that that is a reality that you have to pay attention to. And number two, if you're not aware of how to, uh, shall we say, steer out of a sway, uh, once that trailer back there starts to sway, um, if you don't know how to steer out of it or how to, to manage it. Um, it gets bigger and bigger. Oh, yeah, and it'll flip. And so that what he's talking about in YouTube is all the wreck videos from the people going down the freeway taking videos of, like, RVs that you can see are Start clearly oh, starting to get oh, out of control. It's a pretty scary... Uh, but you can't unsee it, so I, I, prefer <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I prefer to live in naive <laughs> land. <laughs> yeah. So my my point is, um, you know, I I just I've I've pulled twenty thousand miles across country, so I have a lot of experience. Of course, my pull vehicle was so heavy that it you didn't even know you were pulling anything. Right. <laughs> and, um, but but even sp- small short pulls with smaller vehicles, I would just if, if I was gonna do that again, and I was gonna have a you know a truck and pull a trailer, it would be a gooseneck. It's the only way I would do it. What is it about the gooseneck that eliminates the problem? Because it well, moves it, the center of gravity further oh, up over the, the top, top over of the, the top of the the tow vehicle. Got it. Is that yeah. right? Is that right, well, Mark? Yeah, that's right. Your capacity's higher. You typically you're talking about a pickup truck that's you know heavier. Um, you know, versus other options, You've, you're you're essentially putting the the trailer weight right on top of the axle mm-hmm. versus you know four three feet behind the axle. Mm-hmm. So it just and, and turning, being able to turn. That's another thing is you know you have turning limitations, but with a gooseneck you can you can get all the way around ninety degrees. Right. So it's just easier to maneuver. Hmm. Do you make trailers? Not yet, but we were looking at it. Um, you know, I've my son, I've got family. My you know my son is interested in doing that type of thing. But uh, and we've we've done a lot of metalworking, and I, I can build them very inexpensively to spec. But you know, at this point, I can still save in terms of our you know under twenty five k model. I can still buy them and fix them cheaper than I can make them. So. I see. Unless it's a special situation, um, and we're and we're not afraid to go over the twenty-five number. In fact, we do have a project that we're starting in April that's probably uh, you know about ten thousand, almost ten thousand more than that. But um, you know, it's only because the length is longer and there's some special um, uh, accommodations that are required to build inside for bookcases and stuff like that. But um, you know, it's. There's so many options out there. I, I've got four trailers that I've bought that I, I just I'm constantly watching Craigslist, and I'll just buy trailers. Uh, you know, when I look at it and see it's a good deal, and you know, I know I can, um, you know, make the modifications to it. So I've got four projects that are that are waiting to be built. As a real world example, um, I purchased my 18 foot long RV trailer on Craigslist as well for six hundred dollars. Um, I also rebuilt it, you know, new bearings, new tongue jack, new emergency braking and cabling and, and, uh, um, so forth and so on. So my final cost for my 
trailer chassis was just over $1,500. Um, I got several quotes from for brand new trailers that were in the neighborhood of at least 3000 to 4500 hmm. So it took a lot more time, of course, and it took a lot of running around and getting it inspected by the state patrol and making sure that the, that the axles and doing the math to make sure that I can build a house that will, you know, be able to be uh, under 7,000 pounds. That's, that, that's my restriction. So um, as a real-world example, it's doable. It's harder, you know. It's that whole time versus money equation. Hmm. Well, uh, Mark, it was great to have you on the show. Um, fantastic stories. And are are you guys where are you guys? What are you guys living in now? Are you still on the in the bus? Or are you living somewhere else? Well, in in 2013, we bought a house that was a, a total uh, foreclosure, been vacant for five years, and we have been rehabbing it. And three of my kids are in the house, my three oldest, but the rest of us still live in the bus. We park right behind. We have full time access to sewer and water. So. It's just, uh, you know, I, cobbler's kids have no shoes, right? So <laughs> still working on completing that project. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, so for the time being, we're pretty comfortable in the bus, and we enjoy it. Very cool. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. And uh, Tiny House listeners, I hope you enjoyed this one. We sure did. Um, next week, we're going to be talking with Michelle and Mark are quickly going to their computers. Susan Bernardo. Susan Bernardo. With sun kisses, moon hugs. Okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. And with that, we'll leave the show as it is. Come back next week. <laughs> Bye. See you later. See ya, be ya. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. 